and welcome to another episode of the Land Party Lawyers Podcast. My name is Nick Brown, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Steve Blickensderfer. To our regular listeners, welcome back. To our new listeners, on this podcast, we tackle issues at the intersection of video games, law, and business. Through debate, discussion, and interviews, we focus on the legal issues, but we also offer our takeaways and our thoughts. But please remember, nothing we say here is legal advice. So, Steve, why don't you get us started and tell us what we're going to be talking about today. Sounds good. Uh, So, for today's episode, we're actually going to be talking about the topic of trade secrets in video games. And to do that, we're going to be bringing in Charles Throckmorton, who's actually uh, one of the other co-chairs of the firm's Carlton Fields' eSports and Electronic Gaming Practice Group. Uh, Charles specializes in commercial litigation, uh, which effectively means he helps businesses sort out their, their disputes sometimes in court and sometimes not. And uh, Charlie has litigated several cases involving trade secrets in the past, and he's going to be joining us to talk about that today, uh, trade secrets specifically in the video game and as it relates to esports. So, Charlie, why don't we start off by uh, with the basics? What are trade secrets? And let's go from there. Sure. Hey, hey guys. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, I've been a fan of this podcast for a long time. I'm happy to be here uh, getting involved with it. So, Talking about trade secrets, big picture, what is a trade secret? Now, this is uh, oversimplifying it a little bit, but generally speaking, a trade secret can be almost anything as long as it follows uh, the, the following two rules. One, it's kept secret. And two, it has value because it is kept secret. So a classic example of this would be the Coke formula, right, which has been famously closely guarded forever, you know, kept secret, valuable because it's a secret. Or the KFC rest. Does that mean that Steve's skincare routine would qualify? I know that's notoriously guarded. Uh, <laughs> to you, it is. Steve, yeah, Steve. If, uh, if you want to talk to me about that offline, I can counsel you on that. Um, <laughs> it might be. The answer is that it might be, depending on what you've been doing and uh, and what uh, what you're up to. It's, over very, there. it's very valuable because it's secret. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, p- please, please don't include me on that call. Sure. Uh, so uh, uh, other um, textbook examples of trade secrets that you see all the time in cases uh, are things like customer lists, pricing information, uh, proprietary methods or procedures, uh, inventions, unique machinery. And then with respect to you know, video games and esports, things like source code for software, game engines. Right. And then also, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later with a real world example, Oftentimes, uh, contracts themselves can be considered trade secrets if they are, you know, kept secret. Maybe they have some sensitive pricing information uh, or other other language in there that the the team or the player or the uh, league and the franchise, as the case may be, try to keep secret. Okay. Well, thank you, Charles, for that overview. Um, so, w- why does this stuff matter? Why why should you, the listener, care? Well, if you're a company or you're an individual that has sensitive data or confidential information or processes or anything like that, it's probably very important to you uh, to hold on to them and to retain them and, and to keep you know the value of those secrets. And so there's kind of two overarching reasons why you want to be aware of trade secret law that applies in your jurisdiction. The first one is because if you follow the rules, you, you take the nece- necessary precautions and you uh, are able to convince you know, the, uh, the authorities that your sensitive information or your secret sauce is actually deemed, it qualifies for trade secret protection, 
then you may have powerful legal rights against anyone who steals or misappropriates or otherwise gets their hands on your product or your data. That's a lot of value to begin with. But kind of the flip side of that is that if you don't know what the rules are here and you don't follow them and you don't take the technical precautions that are necessary in your jurisdiction, you may be very vulnerable uh, to losing your critical information or the protection of it under these, these statutes. And so what, what does that mean practically? If someone steals your critical information and you go to the court and say, you know, this was improper, I, I, I need to be made whole. Uh, a judge or jury, if they make a determination that your sensitive information is not, in fact, a trade secret, then it's fair game for anyone in the world to use that information. And you no longer have your, your proprietary control over it. You know, and so that, that is a make or break issue for a lot of, of entities and organizations. So what we're going to do into this episode is to talk a little bit about the trade secret laws and talk a little bit in general terms about the rules and the practical do's and don'ts to hopefully minimize the chance. Uh, that you find yourself in that bad situation, um, and what for for esports in particular, you know, it's really it's particularly critical here because the industry itself is still developing. Esports, despite now being a a major form of entertainment, it's still pretty early in its life lifespan, and so people all over the world are trying to carve out their pieces of the pie. They're creating new leagues, they're creating their niches, they're inventing things, and in some cases, they're developing what you know what they and others may consider to be their own coca-cola formula their own secret that if it gets out uh could be very damaging but is very valuable while they have it so this is really important area uh for the industry as a whole right nick i was going to jump in there and just kind of before we get into the do's and don'ts uh, i think it's very important to mark out what how trade secrets compare to other intellectual property rights uh, such as copyrights and patents, right? There's, there are big differences, and I think it's important. We'll hear the definition, and it'll also, understanding how these differ, uh, I think it's going to be also make the definition more clear and, and what makes a trade secret different from uh, a copyright. So let's, let's go uh, jump right in, right? A copyright requires the material to be fixed in a tangible medium. That's what makes a copyright. Uh, that's what creates a copyright, the right itself. That's not necessarily the case for a trade secret. Um, the, the federal statute, which uh, Charles is going to get to uh, later in the show, includes intangible information within the definition of a trade secret. So uh, that that's one of the big differences right there. Another big difference with copyright is that trade secrets do need to be registered, or you need to register your copyrights to enforce them, okay? But you don't have to do that with a trade secret. In fact, that's actually the the trademark to a trade secret is that you keep it secret, which we which uh, we just discussed a moment ago. And to to would, register would uh, not really support the notion of keeping it secret, right? Right, it, it, exactly. If you have to register it or disclose it, you're ipso facto it's no longer a secret. Um, and to and and that's right. To to register the trade secret, you need to deposit a copy of of. Or to register anything, right, for copyright protection, you need to deposit a copy of it uh, with the copyright office, and that could destroy your trade secret. Um, but also note that there are special deposit provisions for programs where you can keep stuff redacted. So there is, if you could picture a Venn diagram where there are circles or concentric circles where there's a little overlap, there could be some trade secrets that are also copyright protected. So they're not mutually exclusive. Um, but... Uh, that's that's the difference with, with copyrights. For patents, if you have a patent, you get a legal monopoly 
okay, on that particular widget, whatever it is. Uh, but there are trade-offs. Uh, first and foremost, you have limited protection when it comes to patents, uh, 20 years or so. Trade secrets, by contrast, you get unlimited protection uh, for the duration of it being a trade secret. Second, you need to publish the process to get a patent, much to the same you need to publish a, a copy of a, cr- a copyrighted work. You don't have to do that with a trade secret. So that's just a general overview of the differences so one can appreciate whether or not you have something because oftentimes you'll see someone said, oh, well, this violates my trade secrets, my IP rights and whatever. So there's big differences there, but there's also some similarities. So anyway, that was my tangent. If you were to patent your skincare routine, you would have to disclose it is what you're saying. I see that this is going to be a recurring theme with you. (laughs) We need to get off of that. Yeah, if you wanted just trade secret protection, you could still hold on to whatever it is that you do and without disclosing it to the rest of us. Is is that correct? That that could be, right? I think I'm just going to disclose it at the end of this so it's no longer a trade secret. (laughs) Uh, You're you're teasing it for the the big reveal at the end? (laughs) That's it. Um, you make a really good point, Steve, that, uh, you know, I think certainly if, if you're not a lawyer, right, the, the the idea of a trade secret and a trademark and a copyright can all sort of blend together as, as general concepts of privacy or protection, but they are different things. And if you do have, you know, sensitive information, you need to be aware of these dif- differences because they, they provide different protections. But importantly, at least in the case of trade secrets, if you if you don't do the things you're supposed to, you can lose the opportunity to have those protections. So uh, hopefully this is helpful to people who, who may not have familiarity with this specific concept. Yeah, well said. And so I, I think what, I, what I'd love to do now is just sort of jump in at a high level into the legal framework. Uh, Steve, you introduced me, and, and like you said, this is something that I uh, work on a lot. I do a lot of these trade secrets lawsuits, and... Um, you know, obviously, you, you don't want to be in court on these if you can avoid it, but sometimes it's unavoidable. If a company comes to, to me or any litigator at, at the firm and thinks that they have a trade secret that's been stolen, you know, you have to do an assessment, right? And what would it look like if someone stole a trade secret? Just, to, you know, if I didn't know anything. Like a skincare yes. routine. <laughs> right, right. So, so the, 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 the first thing that I would want to do if, if um, somebody came up to me and said, you know, this guy stole my trade secret, first question I would ask myself is, is this thing really a trade secret? And, you know, that, that would go back again to these two basic rules. Is this something that, that you, you know, the client or the person talking to me actually kept secret? Or were you careless? Did you... Did you not do the things you were supposed to? Were you not as strong with your privacy practices as you should be? Uh, and then two, and this is where a lot of this trips up, and this is probably, Steve, where you, your skincare routine is not going to get you where you want to be. Uh, does oh, it shucks. Does, sorry, yeah, sorry. Um, you can still share it with us, but sorry. Um, do, does it actually have value because it's a secret? Like, So obviously, you know, Coca-Cola you know, all the competitors would love to get access to that formula. So it has value because it's a secret. But in a lot of cases, uh, you know, people think they have trade secrets, but they don't for that reason. So a lot of it would be an initial analysis. And then as far as was this stolen, then you got to look at who who took it? How did they take it? Did you leave the door unlocked and let them in? Uh, and and the, the circumstances surrounding the theft. And then uh, if if you make the determination that, okay, it looks like there's a trade secret here and it looks like it was actually stolen, 
the decision is uh, where am I going to sue and how am I going to do it? And, and that's where uh, just very high level, there are, there are two different legal avenues that are available to people who have their trade secrets stolen. And that's uh, state statutes and a new federal statute. And, you know, very high level, the state statutes have been in place for decades, for a long, long time. This was the only game in town. If you had, if you found yourself in this type of situation, uh, 1979, uh, a group called the Uniform Law Commission published what's called the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. What that did in a nutshell was create a set of rules. And that that's where you get the keep it secret and value due to its secrecy rules. And what happened with that is almost every state around the country has adopted some version of that. And it lets you sue, at least in state court, um, for a theft of trade secrets. So if I may interject, uh, depending on where you sue, I, I understand this is a uniform, uniform law. So the, the, the goal of a uniform law is to try to make it as uniform across the different jurisdictions as possible. We're, but we are talking about state laws. So depending on where one person lives, the definition of trade secrets could vary across state lines. Is that correct? Well, it's going to, the definition will tend to stay the same because most states have adopted the same uh, language, right? And and I've been saying, keep it secret, it has value for secrecy, but the actual language is, uh, is the subject of reasonable efforts to maintain its secrecy, and it derives independent economic value from not being readily ascertainable. So that's going to be about the same for most states, but the difference will be in how the the courts in those states have uh, interpreted it. So it's going to be very similar, but there are going to be some differences state to state, which is why uh, it's important and good that there is now a second option. But if I could sum that up in another way. Um, So basically you have the same definition, but the the, the court that's interpreting that law and applying it to a certain set of facts will vary jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Because, you know, putting on my, my litigator hat, if I had a case here in Florida, I would lo- be looking up Florida cases uh, pursuant to that Florida statute version of the Uniform Act, and I would be citing to these cases here, and a judge might be more persuaded over cases in Ohio or California. Exactly. So, so for example... In Florida, there could be five cases that say that skincare routines are trade secrets and you're good. In Montana, there might be five that say that, no, actually they're not and you're in trouble. And in that case, we'd be trying to find a way to sue in Florida on your behalf, Steve. So what about uh, the federal statute? So the federal statute, uh, this is this is relatively new in the grand scheme of things. In 2016, uh, the Obama administration and Congress passed the Defend Trade Secrets Act. Uh, which what what that did was it took the state causes the, the state statute and federalized it right and the the impact of that is it creates a federal cause of action so now it, uh, instead of having to sue in state court if if you had to you can sue in federal court and there are plenty of pros and cons maybe that's the subject of a different give me give us one pro and one con one pro to filing in state in federal court over state court and then maybe the flip side of that? Well, this comes up all the time and it depends a lot on your local practices, but typically uh, uh, you have a little bit more control over the pace in a state court action. And that can be to your advantage or disadvantage. uh, Whereas in federal court, the, the rules are fairly strict about these are the deadlines. They are not moving. 
you do not get the time that you want. So that, that can be a major factor in deciding where you're going to file a case. You may also get more face time with the judge in state court than in federal. Obviously, it's going to differ by jurisdiction, but I think on balance, uh, federal courts do do more uh, you know, resolving disputes on the papers than, than state courts do. And so if your oral advocacy is not quite as strong, uh, maybe uh, maybe federal court would be better. If you uh, right, and like uh, you know, the the flip side, if you if you love being in court and you really want to be in court, you might you might uh, lean towards state court for that reason. But there are plenty of other. What about this? Uh, typically, I found that in plaintiffs like state court, but plaintiffs who are people, right, persons. Here with trade secret claims, I would imagine you have more businesses that are bringing actions against other businesses. Does that favor one side or the other in terms of going to state court or federal court if you're a business? I don't think so in this case, but I might be wrong. I think So I think sometimes it depends if you're the plaintiff or the defendant, right? If you're being accused of stealing something or if you think someone stole your stuff, can, it, it can make a difference where you want to be. Um, if I were a business defendant, I would probably rather be in federal court, all things considered, just to to have my own sense of control over the pace and timing and maybe a little more certainty with the law. But, but the, you know, there's pros and cons to both. Right. I, th- I guess at the end of the day, it's a very complicated, it could be very complicated where you want this case. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to keep it in or to move it to federal court. Sometimes you want to keep it in state court. Uh, so it's one of those things that I guess uh, we are we tend to sometimes default to well remand and remove to federal court but that doesn't always uh isn't always the the best tactic so anyway i think that was a too much of a digression so let's get back on track no yeah and just sort of tying the knot on that um that this federal act is is very similar but the the difference and steve you mentioned it before is uh in addition to having the two rules keep it secret you know, valuable due to its secrecy, there's a very, very robust definition in the federal statute of what can be a trade secret. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's very long, but it includes things like uh, scientific and technical information, code, programs, economic information, patterns, plans. And like you said, Steve, this includes intangible information. So, you know, that's written into the federal statute. So that, that um, is helpful for the analysis and helpful for determining if you if you think you qualify. And I understand it's in some state statutes, just not all of them. It's it's one of the variations to the to the Uniform Act that varies per jurisdiction. Uh, but it's just nice that on the federal side, you at least you know it involves the intangibles and the electronics and the, and the programs and the codes, which is going to more often than not come up in this industry. Right. Yeah. So let's let's bring it to the industry. Uh, why don't we? In in video games, what can be considered a trade secret? So if it's public and it's what the player sees, then it's not a secret, and it's not pre- pretty much not going to be considered a trade secret. So what we're talking about here is the hidden game code, the product design, the customer list, as, as Charles rec- referenced before, and the in- and the information behind the scenes. That all can be considered a trade secret so long as it meets the definition. Um, the uh, computer programs uh, can be sold and distributed without disclosing uh, trade secrets contained therein, right? They're in, in the industry, um, game companies frequently will license the rights to use uh, engines uh, that are developed by other companies. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're getting all the background information as to how that engine works. Um, 
And to the extent the business is keeping that information secret and it has value because of its secrecy, that's a trade secret and it, and it deserves protection. And you could have a claim around that later if someone violates that. Uh, also, let's think about if a game has a gold system, right? Uh, that itself wouldn't be a secret, but how the gold is valued um, how the system works behind the scenes and how it was developed, how much money to release, how much money to, to price certain products using the uh, gold system or whatever currency system is in the game, that could be considered a trade secret. And you know, some, some game companies even employ uh, economists to value their system and figure out what uh, certain, um, how much to price things, right? So that itself could also be considered a trade secret. And then when and you th- to that point, you know, the monetization schemes behind these games are a, a lot of time a big part of the business, right? We all see, you know, a lot of similar games out there and what often will make or break or be the difference between a successful company and one that's not is how they're monetizing the game, right? The, and the way that they do that, whether they're too greedy in monetizing it or whether they are leaving stuff on the table or anywhere in between. Um, you know, that, that is often the, the absolute bread and butter of how the game companies are able to, uh, you know, stay in business and fund their next game. So that's probably a major one I would expect. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good example, Nick, because it, it sort of flies right together with what you'll commonly see across other industries, which is that the stuff that companies are, want to uh, protect as trade secrets is usually the like you said earlier, the secret sauce, right? Whatever the pricing, the processes, whatever it is that is underlying, you know, their profits. So I think that's exactly right. And and you can imagine it's a, it's a tight rope that they're they're walking because they want to be uh, clear about what they're how how you, how they make money to an extent because they don't want to look you know greedy or that they're taking advantage of folks but at the same time they need to keep some stuff secret because they need to protect their assets and 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 that's um it's it's a it's a it's a fine line that that game companies need to walk but let's think about another area of trade secrets in the video game space you think about in game you as the player could develop a very effective method of of farming for example uh farming stocks uh the stock market in in animal crossings for example you could figure out a method and there are currently on the internet uh ways that you can manipulate the stock market the stock s-t-a-l-k if you uh like puns um, so that could be an example of a trade secret oh, if, if you kept it secret. <laughs> and we do. <laughs> <laughs> we love puns. Um, uh, or if you developed a, the list of best players in the world that play a particular game and somehow found value in keeping that list secret, um, that could be considered a trade secret. However, big uh, asterisks here, many games come with and user license agreements. I, in fact, I've never played one that didn't have one. And they say oftentimes that the IP created in the game belongs to the game company, the developer. There are some games that allow game gamers to create and own some of their IP. Um, Second Life comes to mind, although I haven't read their EULA in a while. But uh, you just think about that. If, if you were creating IP assets within a game, creates a whole host of very complicated issues and trade secrets is very much part of that so anyway i think that's enough about the video game industry's intersection with trade secrets what about esports charles sure so this is you know i think a good opportunity to talk about what what i as far as i'm concerned is the most high profile lawsuit in the esports space and, and i know you guys have talked about this on previous 
episodes, I'm talking about the the lawsuit between FaZe Clan and Turner Tenney, mm-hmm. alias Tifu, right? And that's Big been one. not only all over the esports news, but all over you know mainstream news around the world, right? It's this high profile conflict between a prominent esports organization and a very prominent streamer. Um, and what I want to talk about, and this hasn't gotten as much of the the coverage, is that there is a trade secret element to this case, and that's a claim by FaZe that Tifu misappropriated trade secrets. Now, what what are FaZe's trade secrets in this case? It's interesting. They're claiming two different types of trade secrets. First, that the actual contract that they had with Tifu, which they called the Gamer Agreement, was itself confidential and a trade secret. And second, and this this ties in, Steve, with something you were just mentioning, right? They say that some of the things that Tifu was doing to make his videos more popular were actually uh, phases trade secret processes that he had no right to utilize. So th- that those are their claims. And now in response, Tifu's defenses were sort of these standard, almost what I would do if, you know, if, if we were doing this, is standard defenses to his trade secrets case, right? Which is one, no, that's not a trade secret. The information you're talking about, the contract and the, the processes are, you know, public or could be figured out very easily. In other words, you didn't keep it secret. Uh, you didn't take the steps necessary. Uh, and then he also claimed that no, you know, for these processes on the streaming side, those are not phases processes. They're they're tifus. He came up with them. All right. So that's the big three, right? And it goes back to knocking from all directions the two definitions you raised earlier. One, not a trade secret. Two, you didn't keep it secret. Three, it wasn't yours to begin with. Right. Right. Exactly. And and so you know, where are we now with those claims? Where are we in the case? And and it's interesting that the timing on this is very good because there's actually been a development in the last couple of weeks, March 2020. Um, the case progressed. It, it went along as, as lawsuits do, and they reached what's called a summary judgment phase, which is where the parties you know, make arguments before the judge and ask the judge to decide if either side is going to win or lose or if they're going to go ahead to a full trial. And at that phase, uh, Tifu asked the judge. Pun intended. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't right, help myself yeah. there. Yeah, no. Uh, I would try to say phase a little bit less. Uh, <laughs> Tifu asked Tifu asked the judge to throw out the trade secret claim, right? And you know, you can see all those those papers. They're they're publicly available. And in my opinion, his best argument there was that at one point, pretty early on in the case, a high profile Phase Clan member and apparently a part owner of Phase Clan went on Twitter and said. That for the gamer agreement, which FaZe Clan was saying is a confidential trade secret, he said, oh, no, we had every intention on releasing the contract, right? Which is Uh-oh. essentially an admission that, one, they don't consider this thing secret. Two, they don't think there's value in secrecy if they're saying we were going to give that up. I mean, imagine if if Coke said, oh, no, 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 we don't. Uh, this isn't a secret. We'll publish our formula in the New York Times tomorrow, right? That's just <laughs> it, 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 and it, it was a there was a very high profile back and forth going on on Twitter when that lawsuit was just filed. And I guess the big lesson there is look to see there was an actual consequence of 
someone saying something that hurt their case later because they had a claim that was later had to be dropped because of something a person said earlier on in on Twitter, right? And on in Twitter sphere. So just yeah, uh, that is a classic and, and example of that. It's kind of like Steve promising to disclose his skincare routine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I will uh, up right. I will hold up my my promise, don't you worry. <laughs> Right. So, so, I mean, that, I know we're going to talk about, you know, practical do's and don'ts, but this is a great example of a, of a don't, right? Don't you need to, if you're going to call something a trade secret, you need everybody top to bottom of your organization needs to be taking quote reasonable steps to, to maintain secrecy. So that didn't happen here. And so what was the impact on the case? Well, you know, usually at, at summary judgment, when the parties have uh, filed their motions, you, you wait and you let the judge decide who wins and who loses, but that's not what happened in this case. So here, uh, instead, before the judge made a decision, FaZe and Tifu agreed, and we don't know the specifics, but they agreed that, that FaZe would dismiss the trade secret claim. In other words, drop it, make it go away, stop pursuing it. So, uh, you know, we can speculate and maybe we will, uh, but all we know is that there was an agreement that... Oh, we will. <laughs> yeah, that, that phase wouldn't pursue this. Um, now, but the, the case is still going on as to other claims, so there's still plenty of, of action there. But wh- why would they have have dropped the, the claim after litigating it for so long? Well, two, two things pop to mind right away for me. One is uh, it may just be the case that they were persuaded by his motion. Um, that sometimes happens. Yeah, they thought they thought he had a strong argument. They they didn't love their argument anymore after. That's, you know, that's not a good feeling. Reading your opponent's papers and agreeing with them. Right, and and you know it costs money to keep doing this. So they may have decided this is we're, we're going to lose on this. It doesn't make sense to keep spending the money and the time. Or relatedly, they they may have decided, uh oh, it looks like we're going to lose on this, and we are going to have a judge or ultimately a jury say we did not have a trade secret. In other words, our contract is not a secret. Our processes are not secrets. And God knows what else are not trade secrets. And the, the, there's a very real downside in that because, and I think, Nick, you mentioned this early on, once you get to that point and you have a judge or a jury making a finding that you do not have a trade secret, that means that whatever your sensitive data was that you were trying to call a trade secret, that is now, it's now open season, right? That has now been decided. It's that different. That's different from... You, Opposing counsel saying in an argument that, oh, this is not trade secrets for X, Y, Z reasons. When you get a judge or a jury making a determination, uh, it has some effect uh, going forward. And, and you're right. It's, That's a great point. It, it would have a detrimental effect going forward as a business if someone in a court said, you know, it's not a trade secret and that has some weight to it. Yeah. It's and the difference between an accusation and a conviction. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And, you know, we don't know that that's what happened. It might have been, and if that's what it was, it was probably a good decision, but that's exactly right. So this brings us to the question, what can or should somebody do to protect their trade secrets? Uh, obviously, all of this is going to depend on your jurisdiction and the advice of your counsel, but just a few ideas that come to mind. Really, there's kind of three categories of, of, of dues here. Uh, there are physical measures, there are digital measures, and there are common sense measures. Just to start with physical measures, you know, these are straightforward, uh, and they may seem simple and obvious even, but uh, I can tell you they're often overlooked uh, to the great detriment of uh, litigating parties. So if you or your business, you have something that's sensitive, you know, start simple, you know, put 
security measures in place, physical security measures. Uh, make sure that your workplace or your office or your warehouse or wherever your, your, your good stuff is stored, make sure it has physical locks and, and consider physical security. You know, the circumstances are going to vary uh, based on the context, but, you know, that as it may include security cameras or security guards or key cards or some sort of uh, biometric, uh, you know, security, you know, like, you know, fingerprint scan or something like that. It sounds, you know, extraordinary, but if your your business or your livelihood depends on it, it may be worth uh, the risk uh, or it may be worth the expense to prevent losing it all because you accidentally let the cat out of the bag, so to speak. Right. And, and, and part of the reason this is so important, there's no, there's no rule that says you must have this, 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 or this. Mm-hmm. What it is, is once you get in front of a judge or a jury, the question is, did you, you know... Did you keep it secret? But more than that, were the steps that you took to keep this secret reasonable steps? So you want to do whatever you can to add points to the reasonable steps side of the ledger, right? And so anything you can do, especially if you have something that is stored, for example, on a, a server, right? You need to protect that server. You need to have you know, a private room. You need to have all sorts of protections, right? And the more that you can do, the better chance you have of persuading a judge or a jury that this is a trade secret that you can prosecute. That is an excellent point, Charles. And and specifically, that is that hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's one thing to sit out now and decide in the abstract what you're willing to pay to protect the secret. But if you're doing this later on after it's out and your only hope is to convince someone that you did everything that you should have done, it's very easy for someone on the other side to come in and say, oh, well, you know, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. You know, you can pick apart stuff very easily after the fact. So the more right. you can do ahead of time to, like Charles said, to, to put points on the board, so to speak, not only will that, you know, security measures maybe prevent a disclosure in the first place, but if the worst happens, then you'll be in a better position uh, to protect yourself. Well, I know you're all wondering, and yes, I do all those things to protect my skincare routine. <laughs> Uh, but if you, you it, does it in a, a secure room, <laughs> and, and I also protect the the digital copy, uh, uh, you know, and I include embedded disclaimers that it's a trade secret, confidential, do not disclose. <laughs> I put that secure server uh, to limited access and put the appropriate controls in place. Uh, but this doesn't apply. You got only fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, this doesn't apply to my my product. However, for for games, uh, don't don't forget about the EULA and to include uh, stuff that's forbidding the dissemination of information that's otherwise secret, sensitive, or proprietary. Whether it's marked or in the context uh, seems like that. Uh, you just want to make sure the EULA is not forgotten to also reflect the protection of trade secrets. I guess is the bottom line. So um, yeah, that, I mean. It's just common sense, right? Right, right, exactly. And so th- this ties in a little bit with with the phase situation, but you got to make sure if you have an organization and, and with esports, a lot of these, we're talking about franchises, teams, leagues, you need to make sure that it's understood throughout your organization that these are your valuable, this is your valuable data. These are the rules. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to not do. So uh, one one place where you see companies and individuals trip up here is they'll have something sensitive, but they need to contract with a third party to help them work on it, or they need to uh, have a relationship with somebody that that exposes these trade secrets, and they don't take the steps in those contract documents. So it's sort of a step one type of thing when you're 
when you do, you know, in the course of your business, have to share the data with somebody, you need to make sure that you uh, lock that up from a legal perspective with, you know, non-disclosure agreements, confidentiality provisions, and all these things that are routine. But if you don't do them, you're in trouble. And what about anything to avoid doing? Yeah. So, you know, to some degree, um, everything we just said you should do, don't do the opposite of that, right? So don't, um, and this, this goes back to the phase example. I think what one of the reasons that argument was strong was it wasn't just an employee, it was a part owner. So that takes you into the management perspective and it takes you into was this person speaking for the company. But um, some classic mistakes that uh, defeat trade secret protection and, and sort of let the cat out of the bag are things like inadvertently disclosing materials to third parties without protecting it. And that's where, you know, if you're on Twitter and you're... You promise to release a skincare skincare uh, routine? Yeah, yeah, right. And or, or you don't implement the basic security measures. You have some super secret uh, code and you don't uh, write into the, the source code comments that this is confidential, this is trade secret, this is proprietary. You, you don't take those basic measures... So th- those are examples, right? And like like Nick said, it's it's a question of if you get down the line and you're litigating these cases, did you do enough or did you not? And you want to be putting as many measures in place on the side of you did enough. So I think that's sort of go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say I think all this is super important, not just for companies, but also people because a lot of we have a lot of folks who are investors and, and interested investors in the space. Uh, if you are evaluating a company that says that they have uh, lots of trade secrets, lots of IP that makes them so valuable. Even for startups, you can imagine. Um, look for this kind of stuff. This is a, a good due diligence list. Did you do all these things that you say protect that protects what you say is a trade secret, um, or are you doing the things right. that are the classic mistakes that you just mentioned and failing to do um, that otherwise discloses what would be a really good trade secret? Right, and like like Nick said, if even if you never, hopefully, never find yourself with somebody stealing your trade secret. These are all also just good commonplace, you know, security measures for your information, right? And so it's sort of a a win-win, right? Right. Well, I think this brings us to the end of the episode. And I was really hesitant. I didn't want to get to the end because this is kind of a sad moment. Um, this is Nick's last episode on the podcast, unfortunately. Uh, Nick is uh, hanging up his his uh, gamer headphones that he's recording this on and and going off to greener pastures. Um, In in all seriousness, Nick has a a really good opportunity uh, that's taken him outside private practice. And we congratulate you, Nick, uh, but we're sad to see you go. Yeah, thank you. It's it's a bittersweet moment. Uh, I, as you noted, I was was presented with a fantastic opportunity that I, I could not say no to. Uh, that takes me out of private practice. And so um, this will probably be my last episode on the podcast. But, you know, uh, I've really enjoyed doing this with you, especially when I've gotten to um, give Steve a very hard time, which is one of the greatest joys in life as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but, you know, keep keep looking out for more content because the podcast isn't done. Uh, and I, I know without a doubt, uh, that you're in great hands with Steve and Charlie. They, they know what, what they're doing and, uh, I'll still be playing games. So anyone who's reached out, uh, we can still play games from time to time. And, uh, I look forward to that. What about your, what, what gamer tag should people add to their various, um, 
things so they can get in contact with you and, and follow up with you on your promise. Mm. Uh, on Blizzard <laughs> Games, my your tag PG is version. progress. All right, there yeah, you go. That, that's the only one I can disclose, <laughs> I think. Um, the others might get us... Uh, 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 they might only show up on Steve's OnlyFans. Well, Nick, uh, we will miss the banter, but we appreciate all the time and, and all the effort you put into Seasons 1 and 2. All of those episodes still relevant, and you should check them out. You connect with us on our Instagram, on our Twitter, or our webpage, landpartylawyers.com. We love to hear your comments and opinions about topics we cover or just the fact that Nick is leaving. Let us know what you think. Please reach out. Uh, we love hearing about that stuff. So un- unless anyone has any other comments, I think that's it. And until next time, game on. Thank you for listening and game on. Thank you for listening, everybody, and game on. (laughs) Was my timing off? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) just a little bit. (laughs) You've been listening to the Land Party Lawyers podcast series with Steve Blickensdurfer and Nick Brown. To learn more about our e-gaming and e-sports practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.